I just want to say I'm in amazement at the way God has led me in this message this morning. I just, uh, I just stand in awe at His grandeur and, and blessing. I remember that uh, Harry Ironside once said, there's certain individuals that I suppose inspire all of us, and, and some of the individuals that I didn't know, of course, lived before me, but Harry Ironside was one of those uh, who has inspired me. And, and I remember that he said one time that there's a real problem with a lot of preachers, and, and that is they, they try to get up messages. And, and that's true. Preachers do try to get up a sermon. That's true. But he said, the best sermons are those that come down, not those that are gotten up. And so this morning, I feel like that, that this one, as long as I stay out of the way, is one that's come down. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious God, abundant, majestic, and glorious in all of your splendor and power and inspiration, I just pray in the name of Jesus this morning that you would pour out your inspiration into this message and just give enabling power to your servant this morning to proclaim the simple and precious truths of your word in an uncompromising manner to the glory of our blessed Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn with me to the 17th chapter of the Exodus. <coughs> 17th chapter of the Exodus. <coughs> We've spent some time in the Old Testament Scriptures as we've considered the names of God in this series of messages, and as we've looked at various features in these Old Testament lessons, we have read about, and it's been referenced maybe not a couple of times, about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. One month after they had come out of Egypt, we find recorded in the 16th chapter of the Exodus an account of how they murmured and they lusted and God sent manna because they were hungry for a different kind of diet. And so for about seven days at least in Exodus 17, we have some events recorded there. And then we move to chapter 17 of Exodus. And we began to read in the 17th chapter of Exodus, and as we approach the latter half of the chapter, we come to a time where Israel was in Rephidim, a place called Rephidim. Now, I can't tell you exactly how long it had been since they had come out of Egypt, but I know it was at least a month and seven days, and perhaps not much longer than that. So we're going to say this morning, as we launch into this passage, that they had been out of Egypt for about a month and a half perhaps, perhaps more, perhaps a little bit less, but approximately that length of time. And so we take up the account in the 8th verse of Exodus chapter 17 and we read, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, for he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation 
to generation. This account tells us about the first attack that the children of Israel encountered by alien nations, by enemy armies, as they came to this place called Rephidim. The attack was by Amalek. Sometimes we refer to the people of Amalek as the Amalekites or the Amalekites. Incidentally, both of those pronunciations are correct. If you look in some Bibles, it'll say Amalekites. Other Bibles will say Amalekites. And so I may, I may use either one of those pronunciations this morning as we speak about these people. But the Amalekites were bitter enemies of the children of God. They were actually distant cousins to them. Esau had a grandson named Amalek. And so if you'll recall a little bit of the account of the generations as we went off of that rabbit trail yesterday morning, how that Jacob, being the grandson of Abraham, or the son of Isaac, and his son being Levi, Levi would have been the grandson of Isaac, Amalek was a brother to... I'm sorry, Esau was the grandfather of Amalek, Esau being a brother to, to uh, Isaac, Jacob. Get this right here. I get Ishmael and, and uh, Esau's names confused sometimes, and so that gets me off on the wrong generation. But anyway, I just want to make this statement that if you follow that, that genealogy, Jacob, Levi, and Kohath, then Kohath would have been a second cousin to Amalek and so when you get down to Moses and Aaron in that generation, they were essentially dealing with fourth cousins as they came to the Amalekites and they encountered these individuals. I only give that as a way of explaining that these individuals, this people, the Amalekites, were cousins of the children of Israel as they came into the wilderness and began their wanderings that lasted for 40 years. Bitter enemies. The Bible tells us that as the Amalekites came and attacked, they attacked those individuals who were the most feeble among the children of Israel. If you'll flip to the 25th chapter of Deuteronomy, you can see with me how this is described in verses 17 and 18. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18, these are the words of Moses as he rehearses what had transpired back in the book of the Exodus in chapter 17. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. And so you understand as you look at that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that the Amalekites, as they came and encountered the Israelites, were very sneaky, very cowardly in their attack. They were lying in ambush, and they picked out those that were weaker, those that were more feeble, those that were lagging behind, I suppose, as the children of Israel were making their journey. A little bit like that calf that we talked about, that was spoken about the other day. And so that's the way they approached them. A very cowardly form of attack. As we look at the account in Exodus chapter 17, in Numbers chapter 24, there's a verse I'd like to also refer to. Numbers chapter 24, verse 20. And the Bible says here, When he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable. This is Balaam speaking about Amalek, hired by Balak, the king, and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that he shall perish forever. Now, when Balaam says that he was the first of the nations, Amalek, he's talking about the fact that Amalek was the first of the nations to attack the children of Israel. That's what he's saying. And he's saying as a result of that, that their end, their latter end, shall be that he shall perish forever. God spoke through this man, Balaam. Ungodly man though he was. He spoke through him and pronounced the edict against Amalek that Amalek and the Amalekites were going to eventually perish forever as a result of their sneak attack, their cowardly attack on the children of Israel here at Rephidim. 
It's interesting, as you follow the descendants and the people of the Amalekites, it's interesting that years and years and years later, you encounter in Scripture a man by the name of Haman in the book of Esther. And Haman was the enemy of the Jews. And Haman was a descendant of Agag, a king, and Agag was a descendant of the Amalekites. And so years and years and years later, you still encounter this animosity, this venomous spirit that existed on the part of the Amalekites and their descendants toward the people of God. But that's the last mention that you find about the descendants of Amalek in Scripture. Bitter, bitter enemies. Many times throughout the light, throughout the history of the people of God, you'll find the Amalekites spoken of and coming and attacking as the enemies of God's people, the children of Israel. And so we have the battle of Rephidim described here in these nine verses in the 17th chapter of Exodus. You read with me the account, of course, and you understand what the, what the battle consisted of and, and how it was broached and, and how it was, uh, how the victory was finally given to the people of God. The title to the message this morning, of course, is found in the 15th verse of this chapter when, when it says that Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. I want to just say that there's been some, some comments about pronunciation and preciseness and, and all of those things about me and, and I, you know, I, I understand how we all have personalities and, and so I apologize for the personality that I have if it gets in the way of you and our relationship. I want relationship with you and I don't, I don't want a personality to get in the middle of that. I, I spoke a little bit about Brother Merle yesterday and, and the intimidation that I encountered with him and Brother Willie came up to me afterwards and he said, I understand what you're saying about him, but do you realize that to some people you're that way too? And, and yes, I know that. I, I know that. I don't want to be that way, but that's the personality that I work with. And so I hope you understand that, that though the personality is perhaps what you first see in my heart, I want relationship. I don't want any barrier of personality to be encountered as we work together in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to use the pronunciation Nisi. The anglicized version of that word in my Bible is Nisi. And so you can pronounce it however you want to. It's, there's not a right and a wrong with the, this, but I'll use the pronunciation Nisi. Jehovah Nisi. And that, of course, does mean banner. It's very obvious as we look at this that it means banner. There are three primary truths associated with Jehovah Nisi that I'd like to go to this morning. Unlike the previous messages, I don't expect to spend a lot of time here in the 17th chapter of the Exodus because the Lord has led me in a different direction and I want to be faithful to the way that He's led. The three primary truths that are signified by Jehovah Nasi, the Lord our banner. The first point that I'd like to consider, and I'm not going to give you these three points at the onset. You'll pick them out as we go on into the message. But the first point that I'd like to, to consider is the staff in the hand. And I'm speaking about Moses. I'm speaking about the account here in the 17th chapter of Exodus. The staff in the hand. The Bible speaks about this, and it refers to it in the ninth verse of this passage. And it says that tomorrow, this is Moses speaking to Joshua, I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so he had the rod of God, and he had it in his hand when he went up to the mountain or to the hilltop, and he stood there. This rod of God is first mentioned in Exodus chapter 4. Look with me, if you would, at how the Bible introduces to us this rod of God. Exodus chapter 4, Moses, in verse 1, answered God, 
God had met him at the burning bush. He was on the backside of the desert in the land of Midian and said, But behold, they will not... This is Moses answering and saying, They will not believe me. God had told him to go back to, to his people in, in uh, Egypt. Moses would have been an 80-year-old man at this time. Moses says, They will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. Moses was a shepherd. He was keeping the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, had been doing so for perhaps as long as 40 years there in the wilderness. And so God said, What do you have in your hand? He said, I've got a rod. What he meant by that is that I have a shepherd's staff. The shepherd's staff. He had this staff in his hand, just a dry stick that he had plucked from some place, and that was what he was using at his, as his staff. And he said, a rod. Verse 4, The Lord said unto Moses, This is Jehovah now, Lord in all caps, Put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. Moses had been told to cast a rod on the ground in verse 3. It became a serpent. Now he takes that serpent by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. So he took the serpent by the tail, and when he put his hand on it, it became a rod again in his hand. Verse 17, same chapter, Exodus chapter 4. Thou shalt take this rod in thine hand, wherewith thou shalt do signs. This is God speaking to Moses. Now Moses had provoked God in this chapter. It says that the Lord was angry with him, verse 14, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. But, but God sent Moses, and he told Moses, what is that in your hand? He says, it's a rod. It's a rod in your hand, and thou shalt do signs with that rod, verse 17. Now, verse 20. And so Moses took his wife, the daughter of Jethro, the man who he is serving. Moses took, uh, Moses took his wife and his sons, two of them, and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took, and here's the first expression of the rod of God. He took the rod of God in his hand. He had the rod of God in his hand. This rod of God is the staff in his hand that's, that's being referred to here in this ninth verse of Exodus chapter 17. The rod of God in mine hand. That rod was used miraculously by God in Egypt. Moses, by times, would, would give that rod to Aaron, and eventually it became known as Aaron's rod. On one occasion, when... when uh, the children of Israel were murmuring, murmuring when there was an uprising. There was a miracle that occurred when Aaron's rod, representing the tribe of Levi, and the rods of the other of princes of the other tribes were laid out, and God revealed Himself and His and His hand picked blessing being resting upon Aaron and the house of Aaron as priests of God. When he caused that rod, the rod of God that's spoken about here in Exodus 4 and Exodus 17, he caused that rod to miraculously bud, portraying to those people that he was blessing and intended to bless the house of Aaron as priests in his service. And in fact, that rod of Aaron that budded, this rod of God, was eventually placed in the Ark of the Covenant and placed in the tabernacle, and then in the temple subsequently, and there it was preserved within the ark. That's beside the point of the message this morning, but that is the ark of God, that is the rod of God, and how the rod of God was used, and how it was symbolizing and portraying the blessing of God. Well, Moses, of course, made excuse. God's anger was kindled. God told Moses, he said, you take that rod in your hand, verses 17 and 20 in Exodus chapter 4, take that rod of God in your hand. And, and so Aaron did that. Moses carried up part of the time, and Aaron carried up part of the time. And, and they come to Rephidim. 
And so in verse 9 of Exodus chapter 17, Moses is telling Joshua, he said, you choose out men and go fight with Amalek, and then I'm going to go up on the hilltop, and I'm going to have the rod of God in my hand. So the battle waged and raged, and it ebbed and flowed, and, and Moses, when he held up the rod, he realized that his people were prevailing under the mighty hand of Joshua as he led those people in this conflict, this warfare. And when Moses' hand grew weary and he let it down, then Amalek prevailed. And so Aaron and Hur were there. They saw what was going on. And they found a rock there and they set Moses on the rock. And Moses had the rod in his hand. And Moses' arms were held up by Aaron and Hur, one on each side, holding up the hands of their brother. Good portrayal of how we ought to occupy ourselves in the kingdom of the Lord, holding up each other's hands. I remember this truth being emphasized most emphatically to me personally and to Janie when we were first called to service in the church in a, in a segregated capacity. We had gotten married. We were living at Quinter, Kansas. We had been married only four months and four days. I came home from a morning of cutting wood, and I saw a couple of black cars sitting at the next-door neighbor's house who was the presiding elder of our congregation. We had council meeting that afternoon, and I saw these two black cars, out-of-county cars, and I thought I knew something was up, and it was. It was really up. Things were up. And, and so a selection was made by our congregation on that, on that afternoon and a couple of selections. And, and one of the selections was that we were chosen to become deacons in our congregation there. Four months and four days we had been married. Janie had set apart for me one Sunday, and it was quite an adjustment as we embarked on that responsibility. But the brethren that afternoon emphasized the importance of exercising as Aaron and her, and just holding up the arms of those who had been called and chosen to serve in that congregation on that occasion. That's the first time that I really remember this account being portrayed for me and being stamped on my mind in vivid detail as we, as we encountered it that afternoon. Well... <clears throat> One of the things that we can understand as we look at this passage is that it's important that we do things God's way. If Moses had gone up there and he'd allowed his hand to get weary and just put it down and, and maybe called on the Lord, uh, perhaps, you know, thinking that, that God in all of His marvelous power will just re, uh, bring this uh, victory to pass and, and cause it to happen and all of that, I suppose it would not have happened. God wanted Moses to lift up that rod, and Moses did. It's important that we always do things God's way. Now, that does not mean that, that in every circumstance that God wants every individual to be doing exactly the same thing. We're a part of a body. We have different members in that body, and one member does one thing, another member does another thing. But in all of this, we work cohesively and blessedly together. It does also not mean that because we do something one way one time means the next time we encounter something similarly, we're expected to do it exactly the same way we did previously. It does not mean that. You can think, and if, you would, if we had read the first part of this chapter, that would have been brought to, that, that, that truth would have been brought before us, perhaps in, in more vivid detail, but, but it, it's true. That sometimes God wants us to do something one way, another time in a similar set of circumstances, we're to do it quite different than that. Moses, as he encountered the murmuring people of Israel on, in the waters of, of Merah, he was told to, uh, at Horeb, he was told to strike the rock and water would come out. And so he did. It's what God wanted him to do. Another time, years later, a place called Meribah, it's actually a second time they encountered a place of Meribah, but this time it's spoken of specifically and explicitly as the waters of Meribah. The children of Israel were thirsty again. And they came there, and they were very thirsty. 
God told Moses, He said, You speak, you speak, and waters will come out. And Moses didn't do like God said. Now, now many times, people suppose that it was because, God, because Moses struck the rock on that occasion that God pronounced the sentence upon him that he would not be permitted to enter into the land of promise. I don't believe that's the reason, and you can look at that. You can consider that possibility. I think the account is, is given to us in the 20th chapter of Numbers. But you can look at the 20th chapter of Numbers, and you'll notice sometime there, as you're reading that, that it was something other that, than Moses simply striking the rock there that caused God to pronounce that sentence stating that Moses would not enter the land of promise. Reading there in the 20th chapter of Numbers, you will understand that Moses had allowed himself to become angry. Anger is a great deterrent to the, to the will of God, the blessing of God in our lives. Many, many times, most of the time. Now, I'm not discounting the possibility of something called holy and righteous indignation. The Bible even says that Jesus on one occasion was angry. So it's possible to have that. But Moses was angry, and in his anger, he said to the children of Israel, Ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of the rock? And in that state of anger, he smote the rock, and God blessed and caused water to come out, but God was not pleased at the fact that Moses had stolen the glory of God. He had done that. He said, Ye rebels, must we, referring to he and Aaron, must we fetch you water out of the rock? And God said, Because you did not glorify me, because you didn't exalt me at the waters of Meribah, that's the reason you'll not enter into the land of promise. Just consider that possibility in the account in Numbers chapter 20. It was primarily because Moses was stealing the glory of God on that occasion when the miracle occurred. <clears throat> There's a right way to do things. I spoke yesterday about, about uh, the time in my life when I was running track. And, and I was a distance runner. And, and that was a good way for a freshman and a sophomore to make the, the track squad. A lot of people don't want to do that, and so I did, and, and so that's what I did. And, and then my junior year, it was basically a washout because of mononucleosis, and, and my senior year, I was again running distance and just had gotten into the year about uh, a third of the way, and one night, late at night, returning home from a track meet, the, the track coach turned to me and he said, uh, he called me by my last name, and he said, Wagoner, he said, uh, how fast could you run a quarter mile? And so I told him how fast I thought I could run one, and he kind of blinked and gulped and stuck his, you know, jerked his head back, and, and he said, well, uh, we'll see Monday. And so Monday we had a little, a little uh, spatial tryout, and, and uh, stopwatch was going, and, and as a result of that, circumstance on, the, on that Monday afternoon, he placed me in a relay with some pretty good, pretty good runners. And so that week then, later on in the week, as we went to a meet, that relay team was quite successful. We won a gold medal that day, and that was thrilling to me. That was much better than running eight laps around the track and just gulping for breath as you, as you went. I'd much rather run that quarter mile. It was a killer. You know, if any of those, any of you who ever run a quarter mile, you'll understand that, that that's, that's a race that'll just, just about, uh, draw every ounce of strength that you have. But some people call it a sprint and some don't call it a sprint, but the, the, the uh, truth is you just about have to sprint the entire quarter mile. It was, it was quarter miles in those days. Today it's 400 meters. But, but anyway, I did that. We won a gold medal. The next week we went to another meet, and, and I was feeling really exhilarated by the opportunity that I had. And, and so the, uh, it, this was called the sprint medley, where you had two individuals that ran 220 yards, each of them, and then I ran the quarter mile, and then 
the handoff was given to the final runner in the relay team who ran the half mile. And so when the baton came to me after the two 220-yard uh, dash runners had run their parts of the relay, their legs of the relay, we were setting pretty good. And, and I took that baton and, and headed off, and, and I couldn't see anybody ahead of me. I could hear some feet behind me, and so I was running as scared as I could possibly be. And, and I rounded the last curve and headed. Everybody's behind me now. Everybody was back there behind me someplace. I didn't know where, and headed toward the handoff, and my teammate was not there. And I could hear people yelling and shouting, and I was blocking them out. I was focused on the finish line, and he wasn't there. And finally, I detected that they were going like this. They were waving me off the track, and, and I couldn't understand. And, and, but it got through to me, and so I, 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 went, I went off the track, and they said, you stepped out of your lane when you took the baton. Well, that's what the officials said. Somebody over there on the curve had raised the flag of disqualification. Actually, I had stepped on the chalk line once, maybe twice. I hadn't really stepped over the line, but I kicked up a little bit of chalk, and, and there was somebody who was a little bit over meticulous in law and details like that, which I can be sometimes. And so we were disqualified. But, and, and, I, and I was greatly disappointed, and I didn't conduct myself exactly the way I should have. But, but one thing I learned from that is that that there are some guidelines and some rules that need to be adhered to at times. And, and so I'm just using this as an illustration as we think about when God speaks to us and when God wants us to do something, it's important to do it the way God wants it done. That's not hard to understand. You have a few incidents happen in your life. I've had a few happen in my life. And we understand that, that it's just important to embrace the way that God wants us to do things. And God wanted this rod held up over the battle. And so Moses did that. Aaron and Hur assisted him in doing that. So what you have is, you have this man of God on the mountain. And you have him on the rock. And you have the rod held up. You can take every one of those points and you can make application for them in your life and my life in the, in the day, in the year of 2013, and how God wants us to approach things. How God wants us to exercise. Ascend into the hill. Make sure you're on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. And make sure that rod, that staff in the hand is in place. And so we have the truth of the staff in the hand. It's this, this staff or this rod is much like this, this, uh, Oftentimes we think of it in the, in the uh, aspect of it being a banner. You've probably read about how armies, or a, a flag I should have said, you probably have read about how armies will tend to rally around the flag. When the flag is, is shot down, well, somebody else will rush in there in the heat of battle and, and hold that flag aloft. And it just gives inspiration to the individuals who are fighting as they look to the flag. And I know the children of Israel were looking at that rod in Moses' hand. They were looking at that staff. They were looking at that banner, if you will. They were looking there at the banner. Banners are to be displayed. The Bible says in the 60th Psalm, verse 4, Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed. I want to get that exact quotation. Psalm 60, verse 4. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee. <coughs> that it may be displayed because of the truth. That it may be displayed because of the truth. And so a banner is made to be displayed. Let's quickly move to another point in this message. This word, Nasi, <coughs> that's translated, or that's, that's given to us here in this account, and that I've been referring to as a banner, this word nasi is a word that's used and translated in a variety of ways. One, one way that it's translated is standard. And Brother Andy's been talking to us about standards, 
And I think he's been speaking to us about standards, perhaps in a little broader context than just simply looking at them as banners. But, but that is a part of that. The, the standard and the banner, there's some relationship there. The Bible even uses Nasi and translates it as a standard. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 10 is a reference. I'm not going to go there. But another way in which the word Nasi is used is found in Numbers chapter 21. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 21. I want to read a few verses there. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. They journeyed, the children of Israel, from Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. This word, this Hebrew word, Nasi, is translated in this passage as pole. The pole with the serpent on it, is the banner. It's a banner. You'll notice in verse 4 that as they had journeyed from Mount Hor, they, they had come around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Could I just remind us that we're in school? And so I just want to point out, I, I don't want to, I want to be sure that you understand I mean this charitably, but I want to say this that the Bible uses a word here that almost all of us will mispronounce. I noticed the two sisters yesterday that quoted Hebrews 11 and went on to end Hebrews 12 did something that I was very grateful for. They pronounced a word correctly that most of us pronounce incorrectly. And the word is compass. They compassed the land. They didn't compass the land. This is not necessarily a German Baptist thing. It's, it's common among Anabaptist people. I've heard it many, many times in my life. It's, it's not compassed. It's compassed. There, there is a right and a wrong to this one. <laughs> they compassed the land. They didn't compass the land. Or compass the land. They compass the land. Just... Uh, just consider that one. Okay. This was another occasion where they murmured. They engaged in murmurings. <clears throat> and years later, you'll find this serpent on the pole referred to in Second Kings in the days of Hezekiah, chapter 18. And it speaks about this serpent this brazen serpent that Moses had made. And it said that the children of Israel had begun to look at this thing as a matter of idolatry. And when Hezekiah realized what was going on, he said, this is Nehushtan. And he simply meant that it was a piece of brass. That's all it is, just a piece of brass. And he took that serpent on a pole, that brazen serpent, and he ground that thing up, and he destroyed it. I believe it says he cast it into the waters of the brook Kidron. But he destroyed that serpent, on that, that brazen serpent, that Moses had set on the pole, because it had become looked to as an idolatrous uh, worship focus. And so, we've looked at the staff in the hand, now we're looking at the serpent on the pole. This serpent on the pole was very much like a banner during those years in the life and the history of the children of Israel. 
Jehovah Nasi and Jehovah Rapha are portrayed in this account. Both of them are portrayed in this account as we think about the time when the children of Israel were required to look on the brazen serpent to live. That was the invitation, to look on that brazen serpent and live. The psalmist says in the 107th Psalm, verse 20, and I believe he's referring to this very account, although I wouldn't be real dogmatic about it, but I believe he's referring to, to this time in the history of Israel when he writes like this and he says, He sent His Word. This is God. This is Jehovah. He sent His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. God sent His Word. He told them, He said, You look on this brazen serpent, and if you look on this brazen serpent, you're going to live. In that account, in Numbers chapter 21, we understand that there was no salvation possible unless those individuals who had been bitten were willing to look on that brazen serpent. There was no other way to experience salvation than to look on that serpent that Moses had made of brass and set it up there on a pole in the center of the camp as a banner for the people. Jehovah Rapha and Jehovah Nasi both being portrayed there in that account as we think about what transpired, what happened in the camp on that day. They were told in verse 8 of Numbers chapter 21, you'll notice they're told there to look on that serpent, that brazen serpent, and it also says, in verse 9, that they were invited to behold it. Or that's what they did. As they looked upon it, they beheld it. Two different Hebrew words. A distinction is important here to cause, help us to, to enhance our understanding. The first word in verse 8 simply means to see or to consider. That was what God asked him to do. You see this thing. You look at it, see it, and consider it. The word in verse 9, a different Hebrew word, and that word means instead to scan, to look intently. And so those individuals who were bitten, realizing that this was the only possibility for healing, they beheld, the Bible says, that brazen serpent. That means they scanned it. They didn't just take a quick glance and look away. They scanned that thing. It was in their focus. Their focal point was right there. They were looking at that thing, scanning every detail of it, looking intently upon it. And as they did so, then God sent His healing power, Jehovah Rephaward. And He sent that healing power and healed those individuals who had been bitten by those serpents that He had sent to come into the camp. A difference between simply looking and beholding. I would encourage us that we all Engage with looking intently at others as we go through this day, as we go through life. Look intently. There is just something very, very powerful about walking up to somebody and looking at them in the eyes and just really focusing on their eyes. That only works if you have a clear expression. And that clear expression only comes if you have a clear conscience. And so there may be need for cleansing yet. But I want to encourage us that it's important that we have a clear expression as we try to communicate the love of Jesus that's in our hearts. It's important that we do that. And that clear expression comes from having clear consciences, hearts that have been cleansed. We have dealt with the things that ought to be dealt with and we're allowing light to shine through us. God shining His light into us and that light radiating out in glorious fashion to those that we communicate with day by day. The serpent on the pole. The third point of the outline this morning. The staff in the hand. The serpent on the pole. The third point, I want to go and look at the Savior on the cross. The Savior on the cross. You know, I suppose, that the serpent on the pole prefigures the Savior on the cross. 
John chapter 3, verse 14, says like this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world, for, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Second time that expression is given in those verses there in the middle of John chapter 3. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now, I, this is perhaps a side note, but, but it's important, I think, for us to understand that, that Jesus was speaking to these people, and you don't speak exclamation marks. Now, you can raise your voice, and, and you can pound your fist if you want to, and, and you can do things to try to emphasize a point, but he, didn't, he couldn't speak an exclamation point. Neither, when the words were recorded, even into the Greek language, was there any opportunity to use an exclamation point. We use that in our language, and it signifies a, a, a critical point. It signifies something we want to emphasize. But, but the way Jesus did that was that He repeated Himself. And so if you wanted to emphasize something, you said that statement over again a second time. And that's why sometimes you'll read, especially in the Gospel of John, You'll read words like this. You'll read, Verily, verily. I like to pronounce it that way. Verily, verily. I don't like to pronounce it verily, verily. But, but Jesus on this occasion, He said, As Moses lifted up the servant of the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, He's made that statement. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.15. Then he goes on into John 3.16, and he says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and He repeats Himself here, and He's putting the exclamation point on this, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he summarizes that in verse 17 as he goes on and speaks about the fact that, that God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Look at Him. Behold Him. Scan Him. Gaze intently upon Him. That's the means of salvation. The, the Savior on the cross. It's a hyperbolic exclamation point. You know, it's been said many times, and you know this, that, that there was only one thing that held Jesus there on the cross. We sing sometimes he could have called 10,000 angels, I think we sing. And, to, and, 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 you know, he could have been delivered. He could have been taken down from that cross. Those that passed by mocked and, and railed upon him and, and said things like that. Like this, he said, they said, he saved others himself he cannot save. Well, he could have come down from the cross. Indeed, he could have. But love held him there. He stayed there upon the cross because he loved us. Indeed. That verse that we sang is a verse from Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. And that verse says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and His banner over me was love. Now, we look to Jesus on the cross, and we understand that this is the banner. This is the banner that's over us. And this banner is a banner of love. There's never been love portrayed like love that was portrayed at Calvary when Jesus took our sins upon Him and He bare our sins in His own body on the tree and He hung there, suspended between earth and heaven, hanging there for us, for me, for you, for all of humanity, hanging there on the cross, the banner of God's children, of His disciples, the Lord Jesus the banner of love over us. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. He was there. He was cursed. 
It's important for us to understand as we think about curse and its portrayal in Scripture that curse is not death. Curse is not death. You go back to the very first mention of curse in the Bible, and the Bible says that because Adam and Eve transgressed in the garden, that God came and pronounced a curse. He pronounced a curse upon the serpent. He pronounced a curse upon the earth. The serpent didn't die. And the earth didn't die. Now, there's a, there's a sentence there, and the sentence is death. But just because something is cursed does not mean it's dead. And so, so Jesus hung there on the cross, and He was a curse. But He wasn't dead yet. He was there as a curse. You and I are cursed too. If we don't acknowledge and accept the provisions of the banner over us that God has given. Jehovah to see. If we don't embrace this banner, the curse is upon us. And the sentence of death is upon us. And so we've got to be clear with this. We've got to embrace this with open hands and hearts that are open to Him. We've got to be willing to allow Him to come into my heart and occupy every corner and every inch of that. And if we find sometimes that there's darkness there, it's got to be brought out and brought to the light and cleansed. We've got to make resolutions. We've got to do something. Plead for the mercy and grace of God to empower us, to infuse us with this overcoming power so that the banner might truly be over us, the Savior on the cross. Even though the curse was pronounced, mercy still existed. Even though the curse is pronounced upon us in our unbelieving state was pronounced upon us, mercy, the mercy of God, was still extended to us. If there's anybody here in this room this morning that knows that that curse is still effective in their lives, I want to emphasize that God's mercy is reigning and grace is available. It's there. And you can be clear before God. Indeed, you can. You can have Jehovah to see reigning in your life. You can have His banner over you. You can be experiencing and encountering Him in real and vibrant ways what it means to have His banner of love over us because His mercy is still being portrayed and being made available to us. <clears throat> Do you know that that uh, there's something that's just very attractive about this cross? It was a deadly thing. Deadly thing. It was an instrument of death. But even understanding that the cross was an instrument of death, the Bible says that there's an attraction to the cross on which Jesus died. One reference in the words of Jesus, John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. You see how that works? There's an attraction there. There's a drawing power there. Just a drawing power to the cross. More especially to the Son of God who hung there. To the Savior of the world who hung suspended there upon the cross. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. That's why we can say there's an attracting power to the cross. There on the cross, of course, there was a condemnation pronounced. And the condemnation was pronounced against sin. Paul writes of this in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, And that it was weak through the flesh. Thank you. I want to turn there, though, because I want to be sure that I get both verse 3 and verse 4. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so that, that passage tells us that there's condemnation there. That law was condemned. 
God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. He condemns sin there, that the righteousness which was meant to be portrayed in that law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's the condemnation aspect of the Savior on the cross. The condemnation of sin. The Another truth that we must understand as we think about the Savior on the cross is that, that there is a righteousness that is imputed as a result of the Savior being suspended there on the cross. There's a righteousness that is imputed to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 reads like this, He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. No other way, no other way possible to be declared righteous except that God would give us Jehovah to see. He would set the Savior on the cross. The banner, the banner is there. The banner is there for us to look at. The banner is there for us to embrace. The banner is us there for us to get a hold of and to thank God and praise Him for the blessing of Jehovah Nassim. That banner, in its, in its clearest sense, that banner is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we hold up the cross. We hold up the cross of Jesus. That is the banner. It's the cross of Jesus. Now, we don't want to make... Uh, Take the cross and, and do something with it like the Israelites did with that brazen serpent and make it to be a Nehushtan. But, but really, in the, in the most basic sense, the banner is the cross of Jesus Christ. And not only is it the cross that Jesus died on, but it's also the cross that you and I are invited to die upon as well. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And it's important for us to grasp the entire truth of that passage in Galatians chapter 6. That truth is, by whom the world is crucified unto me. In other words, when the world looks at me, they're to see somebody that's dead. They look at me as being dead. But the other truth that's portrayed there is equally valid, and that is when I look at the world and the things of the world, that's to be dead to me. There's to be no attraction there, nothing for me to want to reach out and grab a hold of. I'm dead to the world, but the world is dead to me too. That calls us to holiness. That calls us to understand that we are a separate people, that we are called to be sanctified, as Brother David spoke to us last evening about. That world is filled with dead things. It's dead to the child of God. We've got to understand that. We've got to make application in our lives, challenging as it might be for every one of us with certain areas in our life. The banner of the cross is there for us. It calls us to allow ourselves to get right there on the cross and become dead to the world as the world is to be dead to us with our blessed Savior, our blessed Master. God forbid that I should glory. Paul said there in that passage in Galatians chapter 6, literally, that means to vaunt. That means to vaunt. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to vaunt. Exalt highly. It also means to rejoice. We're to rejoice in the fact that the cross was given for Jesus to die upon and for us to die upon that Jehovah Nassim might be reigning in our lives as a banner. Vaunted, rejoicing, proclaiming, and telling it. We must recognize the truth of being crucified with Him. I don't know that I need to spend a lot of time this morning summarizing the message. We looked at the staff in the hand. We looked at the serpent on the pole. And we looked at the Savior on the cross as we considered Jehovah Nasi.
And I would encourage us to just try to come to grips with the blessed reality of the banner that is ours. We rally together around the cross of Jesus Christ. We rally together there. It's where our gaze is to be. It's the world, it's, we're supposed to be scanning and looking intently at the means by which God accomplished our salvation. The banner. Looking at the banner. That's the means by which we come together, by which we rally each other, supporting and encouraging each other because of Jehovah Nasi, His banner being over us.